as we come now to encounter God's word. Let's begin with prayer. O Holy Spirit of God, you who speaks to the heart and soul of all humankind, teach us, teach us from your word how to follow you in your name. Amen. Our lectionary text first is from the Psalter, Psalm 63. And this is where the psalm, it's a lament, where the psalmist just delights in the presence of God, be it in the sanctuary, in the middle of the night, feels that he is under God's wing. Hear the words of scripture. O God, you are my God and I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. But when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The word of the Lord. And our gospel lesson is taken from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 13. And we're reading the first nine verses and the last four verses. According to Jewish belief, if a painful experience uh, is ex it happens, it's a judgment from God. And Jesus in this passage is saying, no, that's not what happened. There is evil. There are natural disasters. And then Jesus still turns and says, but still, repent. Later in this passage, there is a threat from Herod, and Jesus says, no, I've got work to do today, tomorrow, and the third day. Tell that fox that this hen is not coming out of the chicken coop, so to speak. <laughs> Hear the words of the gospel. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. And then Jesus tells a parable. A man planted a fig tree in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? And he replied, Sir, 
Let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. And then from verse 31, we read these words. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, Jesus. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I'm casting out demons, performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today and tomorrow and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, I tell you. You will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Have you ever thought that someone was out to get you? Perhaps, perhaps here in Lincoln, you're driving down a street very peacefully, and suddenly an oncoming car looks like it, it is just swerving right towards you, intentionally. They're out to get you. And then you realize they were just trying to miss a pothole. But Jesus knew what it meant to have someone truly after him, and I imagine most of us kind of do as well. These interruptions are not exactly welcome, but interruption was a part of Jesus' ministry. Someone was always intruding, interrupting. Throughout the Gospels, there's, you have a story and it's going along, and then all of a sudden it changes directions because there's an interruption. In our passage today from the 13th chapter of Luke, Jesus is teaching. He's got this long teaching episode of greed, about wealth, about uh, warning against hypocrisy. And at that moment, it says, at that very hour, he has an interruption. You know, interruptions can be sometimes the most challenging moments in our life. Think of just the interruptions we have faced this week with the natural disaster of flooding and the dam and all of the, what's happening in Nebraska as well as Sioux Falls. And then we face a tremendous evil in New Zealand when our Muslim brothers and sisters were killed while they were praying. Let us pray. Gracious God, we, we as well come with an agenda, but let our agenda align with your agenda for our lives and for our church. Amen. Well, at the beginning of this chapter 13, people are interrupting Jesus, telling him this horrible story that Pilate has mix the blood of some Jewish Galileans with their sacrifice in the temple. 
So let's, let's try to break down this claim. Pilate, he, Pontius Pilate, he's the governor of this Judean district of the Roman Empire, and he sent soldiers, terrorists, into the temple of Jerusalem, the capital of their Jewish religious and political life, to kill a group of Jewish pilgrims who had come offering their sacrifices at what they were required to do of their faith. And besides that, these men were from Jesus' hometown of Galilee. It was a bloody outrage. Does it sound current? Worshippers killed while praying? Jesus doesn't try to confirm this story. This is really the only incident of it in all of Scripture. But, you know, it sort of feels like a pilot-like thing that could have happened. And the people that came to him, they want Jesus to do something and do something now with righteous indignation, armed resistance, go after them. But Jesus doesn't. The second interruption is at the end of this chapter 13. And this time it's a group of Pharisees who interrupt Jesus with a warning and saying, Herod's trying to kill you. Get out of town quick. Pharisees, usually they're on the opposite side of what Jesus is doing. They're very more legalistic and they want the religious laws, especially about the Sabbath, to be observed to the T and enforced. No wiggle room. And Jesus, well, not as much. Jesus thinks that the Sabbath was made for people, not the other way around. This day of rest and worship is made for you. How wonderful. It's not surprising they were trying to get Jesus out of their way and threatening him with Herod that's out to kill him. The Pharisees and perhaps Herod just wanted Jesus to be someone else's problem. But Jesus has an agenda. You thought about why he was heading to Jerusalem? Why he was going there? His agenda was to, to be with the people, to talk with the people, and to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery, sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free. He had his agenda, and he said it early on. But gathering the people in Jerusalem, though it was a big part of Jesus' agenda, as you can see in this passage, it's not going anywhere. It's not happening. Jerusalem was the center of their religious life and political life, and Jesus wants to go there to preach the good news, knowing he's going to have threats, knowing he's going to lose his life. His efforts to gather all the people together, it, it doesn't get off the ground. And so here in this passage we read today, what does Jesus do but lament? You could just tearfully hear him saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. What a powerful image of a mother hen 
attempting to gather her unwilling brood under her wings. And they're not willing. So Jesus just laments. You know, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes, despite our best efforts and intentions, people are unwilling, perhaps not able, to be rescued or to be helped or to accept change. And these are people you dearly care about, you would lay your life down for. And sometimes, it doesn't work. So all you can do is lament. It's not your fault. It wasn't up to you to begin with, so it's not on you. But you have to face the fact that there's nothing more that you can do to change a person, a group, a church. Just lament. It didn't work. There are some other times that it's on you, where you can take steps to make things better to advance the agenda that you know needs to happen. So it's sort of like that vineyard owner in the parable that we read about. You can just get out your ax and start chopping. You know, to be honest, that's probably more my speed. If something's not working, change it. If the diet's not producing your waistline being a bit smaller, try a new one. Add exercise, put another thousand steps on your Fitbit. I get that vineyard owner. I think, I think he and I would be good friends. I really do. He has a dud of a fig tree, and it's in his vineyard. He's about growing grapes, not figs. He's not a fig tree horticulturist. The fig tree is a drain to the soil, and it's not producing figs. It's all take and no give this tree. It's taking the valuable resources and it's giving nothing back. Three years, plenty of time, cut it down. Don't waste another thought. Don't waste more breath on cursing it. Just cut it down. It's a fruitless tree. It's a luxury we can't afford. Well, as you know, when we read parables and we think we have them figured out, we're probably missing something. There's another character in this parable, and that's the gardener. He works for the vineyard owner, and the gardener's not so inclined to give up on that fig tree. The gardener's going to bat for the fig tree. Oh, give it one more year. Let me dig around it and fertilize it, maybe. Maybe, just maybe, it will produce. Maybe gives you wiggle room. You can strategize with maybe and improve your argument, practice your pitch. You can work with a maybe. Because maybe can give you a whole new lease on life. Remember when your mom would say, maybe? You knew it wasn't over. Maybe. You see, there's grace hidden in the maybe. Maybe's not a guarantee. It may not work. But I believe that that is where our best efforts end, 
and the unpredictable grace of God begins, and it may be just where we are, maybe. As people of faith and as a church, we live in that spot where there are no guarantees that our best efforts will work. But like the gardener who wants to take this on, in spite of the fact it may not work, so do we. Yes, we understand this concept. It might not work. This ministry might not work the way we planned. This harebrained fundraising idea might not work. The relationship you are in might not work. The medicine might not work. You know, I so appreciate the leadership of this congregation, deacons and elders, who are willing to tackle new ways of doing ministry. Perhaps you know that our 27 deacons have divided up the congregation, and each deacon has their own little congregation of 17 families and they're willing to minister to their congregation. They're making calls. They're seeing who's missing, who perhaps fell through the cracks, who needs care. And I've heard some pretty amazing stories already. How many of you have heard from a deacon? Whoa, deacons, turn around and look. Look at this. They have, they're hearing from you. You're deacon. And I'm impressed with the elders. The elders are wrestling with a budget shortfall. The elders are attempting to discern what are the pillars that we stand for going forward as we call a pastor. What makes us distinct? One elder said to me, well, you know, we're, we're really good at taking care of each other. And my first gut level response was, oh, but we should be caring for the world. And then I thought, you know, this is exactly where we start, and that's caring for one another. As three congregations come together as one and fellowship together as one, we get to know some people we haven't got to know before or listen to them, pray for each other. We spend time in fellowship in the garden room with a good cup of coffee, and see people maybe you haven't seen. You welcome them home. You perhaps follow up with a phone call. We are a family of faith. We need to come together and make sure that everyone feels a part of this family and cared for. Yes, we do go out and we minister out there, be it in the gathering place or just in the last 24 hours preparing for Presbyterian disaster assistance response and a team will be ready to go. But perhaps our call today is to care and really know one another. The call to discipleship is to care about things that might not work, but to care anyway and to care about them now, not someday. Yes, we're about feeding the hungry. We're about taking on racism. We're about putting our energy into our children, into our teenagers. We're about caring for this earth and climate change and caring for someone you may not know who needs 
your health. All of this adds another stitch to the tapestry that is our community called Westminster Presbyterian Church. These are things we can do now. We don't have to wait. Yes, we live in a sinful world. None of us know what could happen on any given day. So this parable, this teaching is very current. It's time to bear fruit now. It's time to get on with God's agenda today. And let us trust in the mercy of God to sustain us when it doesn't work as well as when it does. Amen.